that really in the Bible? You live in a world where everyone has an opinion about the Bible. Of what values are your beliefs if they are not clearly found in the pages of your Bible? The question we must ask is, are your opinions and beliefs really found in the Bible? Hello, I'm David Freeman Webb. Is that really in the Bible? I want to talk about the subject, probably the most misunderstood subject in the Bible, and that is the subject of hell. When I consider all the misinformation about that many religious people have about this subject, and that is hell, such as, one, hell is burning right now. You know, there was a, actually I heard this before, this uh, this CD of someone had take, taken a, a live mic and put it down in a hole in the ground in the Siberian desert, and they claimed it was the sounds of hell. They, they ran this microphone way down two or 300 feet, hole in the ground in the middle of the desert, and you hear all these moaning and then groanings of people, and actually heard that in a sermon one time. Scared the hell out of me. No, just kidding. Uh, but it actually found out that it was a recording from a zombie movie, and all the screeks and the paint and the, the, the hollering, the you know the yelling and all that. It was actually a came from a zombie movie that was recorded long ago, and they took that little sound clip and claimed it was the sounds of hell. So you know the people, the things people will do to try to. I don't know, uh, bring people to conviction or something. I'm not, you know, I don't think you should ever use trickery to do that. But anyway, that's one concept. Hell is burning right now. Two, people who go to hell are tor tortured for all eternity. That's another misconception that they burn and burn and burn and burn and burn and never quite burn up. And you have to understand why that teaching exists. It's because of another false teaching, and that is the immortality of the soul. You know, once you figure out you don't have an immortal soul, that God only has immortality, and that immortality is something that we're going to get at the resurrection when Christ returns, resurrects the dead, and at that point, we will be given immortality. But immortality is something you don't have right now. Now, once you understand you don't have an immortal soul, you realize, well, there's nothing that's got to keep burning and burning and burning for all eternity. You will simply be destroyed in this Gehenna fire. The third uh, false misconception is in heaven, there's a place called hell. And that in heaven, you know, everybody's in heaven and you can walk over there and, and see, oh yeah, there's Billy Bob, Uncle Joe, yeah, I reckon, that. oh, who's that guy jumping up and down? Oh, that's Sister Sue, yeah, she didn't make it. That's another misconception. And in heaven, in heaven, there's a place called hell you can go over and look at at any given moment. That's not much of a heaven, is it? And a fourth thing is that people who never had a chance for salvation, God's going to burn them up also. You know, the missionary that had a flat tire, he, didn't get, he doesn't get to the little village soon enough, and the little African girl dies of AIDS, or, or hey, forget about a girl, the African woman. She dies of AIDS before the missionary gets there to save her soul, and so she's in hell burning for all eternity. The fourth misconception is that people who never had a chance are all, they're going to burn in hell for all eternity. Never had a chance for salvation, I should say.
So there's a lot of misconceptions, and, and these misconceptions about hell doesn't fit the nature of God. Doesn't fit the nature of God at all. Because if you think about it, your worst enemy, you wouldn't torture him for all eternity, would you? No, you'd want to put him out of, your, out of his misery, but you wouldn't want to torture people for all of eternity. So a lot of these concepts about hell does not fit the nature of God. And after all, only 33% of the world's population even remotely claim to be Christian. Only 33%. So that would mean 66% of the earth's population are going to go to hell, uh, because, according to the mainstream Christian concept, because they're lost. They don't even claim to be Christian. 66% of the earth's population right now. Okay. Now, the verse I want to look at today, the verse that people use to build this false concept about hell, the verse that preachers will use over and over again, they take a parable to explain this ever-burning torment of being tortured for all eternity in a place called hell. Now, do I believe in a literal hell fire? I do. I do. But, but the hell that I believe in is uh, evidently a lot hotter than the one that you're told about. The hell that I believe in will destroy people. It will, they will exist no more. That's the kind of hell that I ultimately believe in that will be out there in the future. And I'll explain more about that later. So don't get me wrong. Don't, don't think that I'm teaching, oh, he don't believe in hell. No, I do believe, but it just burns, it destroys people. You no longer exist. You don't burn for all eternity in a place called hell. All right. The scripture that people use is a story about Lazarus and the rich man. And I'm going to try to explain the meaning of this parable. And then the first thing I want you to understand is this. In teaching theology, you never use a parable of, of anybody, of Jesus or whoever. You never use a parable to establish dogma or doctrine. That's a no-no. You know, a parable is a riddle. It is an allegory. It is something that Jesus used to explain another thing, but you don't take parables and uh, use them to establish doctrine. You never, ever, ever do that. And I think you'll understand why as I begin to, to explain it. In Matthew 13, verse 24, another parable, so that tells you what it is, put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his, in his field. Now, this is not the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. I'm going to use this to explain why you never use a parable to establish doctrine. Okay, now here's the parable of the um, sower. And Jesus tells, tells us another parable he put forth unto them, saying the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares. Now, here's a parable that Jesus puts forth. Now, left to our own interpretation, there's no telling where we could go with this. There's no telling where a preacher could go with this. You know, here you have, you know, good seed, you have the tares that's sown, and... And so you're, you're sort of left, okay, how do we interpret this? How do we understand this? 
Now, I'm trying to explain why you don't use parables to establish doctrine. Now, the good news in this parable is that his disciples came back and said, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. They came back to Jesus and said, We don't get it. Explain it to us. And so here is Jesus' answer. And he said to them, Matthew 13, verse 37, He said to them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. Okay, got that. The field is the world, got that. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, okay, got that. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. So here is a thorough explanation to this parable. You can't go wrong because Jesus goes back and explain it. Now, and let me explain something here. It's okay to have an opinion about what you think a parable means. And I'm going to give you mine about Lazarus and the rich man. But when you see your preacher get up there on Sunday morning and, and say, okay, I'm going to prove to you the concept of that people burn for all eternity in hell. And he, he, he proves it or tries to prove it from a parable that's a no-no. You, you should get up and walk out when your preacher does that because you just don't use parables to establish doctrine. Now, the bad thing is this. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus doesn't give the explanation, the meaning to it. We have no record of that. And so it's left for us to decide, well, okay, what does this parable mean? And it's left for preachers to take that parable and they have made a shipwreck of the parable of the Lazarus and the rich man by trying to establish a belief system that says God is going to burn people up for all eternity in a place called hell, and yet they never quite burn up. They stay alive for all eternity in a place called hell. They've taken the parable, and they've used it to establish dogma, doctrine, and you don't do that with a parable. You, don't, you just don't do that. It's not the purpose of the parable. A parable is a riddle, it is an allegory, and it's not meant to establish doctrine. And the problem is Jesus doesn't explain this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So let's go through it. Let's go through it. Luke 16 verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at the gate full of sores. Now here we have a stark contrast, and you're going to see Jesus making a stark contrast between the two. Two ways of life, um, what, you know, what you don't want to do is in this parable is often people will read this parable and they'll say, oh, rich people are bad, poor people are good. You, know, you don't want to do that. And then in this case, that was the issue. You had a an, an evil rich man, he had a very good poor man. But you don't want, again, you don't want to take this parable and say, oh, that's, that's true of all, all rich people are, are bad and all poor people, you know, the poor bum on the street, he, he's a godly man. No, you don't want to establish that, but, but you just, you know, you, I've seen people do that, by the way. It's almost like an idea they develop that if you're poor, that's somehow more godly. And if you're rich, somehow you're more of a sinner. A lot of religious people think that way, by the way, but you don't want to go there. Okay, Luke 16, verse 21. And desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. 
again, the contrast is being developed in even more. The rich man could have helped, but he didn't. Okay, two lifestyles, poor man, rich man. All right, Luke 16, verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angel into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, get the picture. Both died in this parable, this riddle, this allegory. Both men die. And, of course, your Bible tells you the dead don't know anything. And it's not until Christ resurrects the dead that they come back to life. So you've got to have those fundamentals down in order to understand about you got to know the fundamental concept about the state of the dead and the resurrection. When do we come back to life? Christ returns. First thing he does is resurrect the dead. Okay. Don't let that slip by you. Okay. Here the parable begins to break down. And it's, it's, I think you can begin to see why you cannot use a parable to establish doctrine. There's very little, you know, literalness in a parable. Uh, you have to, to understand that. Now, there's this phrase that um, Abraham, it says that the, um, the, the uh, poor man was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, okay, nowhere in the Bible does it say that when you die, you're carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Uh, you know, it's like, oh boy, I can't wait to die. I'm going to be carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. You know, it does, the Bible doesn't teach that. Okay. The Bible teaches that the state of the dead, you're dead, and you're waiting for the resurrection. Okay. Um, but the contrast is being developed between the poor man, you know, the, 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 the poor man was a good man, the rich man was an ungodly man. Now, what is implied here is that the poor man had a relationship with God. That's the expression carried away by an angel into Abraham's bosom. And basically it's what it's saying is this man had a, this poor man had a relationship with God. Now again, if you, if you read parables and you interpret them literally, you're going to be just another ignorant Christian walking around spouting out all kinds of crazed ideas. All right. In Luke 16 verse 23, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, the word hell there is not Gehenna. It is the grave. Now, maybe you didn't know this, that the word hell, you have a tendency to look at that word, oh, he's in hell burning. The word is not Gehenna. Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which was like a burning garbage dump that existed in Jesus' day. And when his disciples, when, when Jesus talked about burning in Gehenna, they knew exactly what he meant. They meant, oh boy, that place over there where carcasses of dead animals and crim criminals are burned and it's sort of smoltered and never quite burned out. That was a literal place that existed in Jesus' day. So when Jesus talked about the danger of a Gehenna fire, his disciples knew exactly what he meant. When Jesus talked about Gehenna fire, his disciples did not think about burning for all eternity. No, that thought never crossed their mind. I can guarantee you that. But the word hell here, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, the word is just grave. You see, you thought it meant Gehenna, didn't you? No, the word is just grave. In other words, we could read it like this. And in the grave, Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, what is it when dead people open their eyes in the grave? Well, it is a resurrection. 
Again, in the grave, Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Why is he in torment? Because he's on fire, right? No, that's not, no, 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 no. He's not on fire, okay. I think he's in torment because he realizes that he had rejected his chance for salvation, and there was no way to make that right. And there's a certain amount of fear that come, you know, if, if we try to interpret this, you know, there's a certain amount of fear that would come over you because you, you would be in torment if you realize you blew your chance for salvation. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, you, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, aha, he's in flame. He's in hell. You know, he's burning. Now, let, let's just, okay. Let's carry this concept to its absurdity. All right. Let, let's say you're a firefighter. And there's a backdraft that, occur, I think there's a word for it. I can't, I can't think of what that, it's called, but it's when a vacuum and, and, it gets, the heat is intense, but you're a firefighter and you're in there and the, the, the roof starts to collapse. You've got your equipment on, your fireproof suit on, and the building is burning down all around your head and you're, you know, you're, it's, it's, just, it's getting hot. And you take your walkie-talkie and you key your walkie-talkie and you say, hey, send one more firefighter in here with a cup of water to dip his finger in and cool my tongue. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, if, this, if you interpret this in the literal sense that this guy is asking for a drip, a, do, a, a, dop, you know, a, dop, a drop of water to cool his tongue, I mean, why not ask for a deluge? Why not ask for the dam to break, firefighters to come in and, and hose this place down? You know, if you, if you carry this, to the absurdity that people explain this verse, that he's in hell burning and he asks for a, a drop of water on his tongue, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, it goes on. It says, And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in his life matter evil things. But now here is he comforted, and you are in anguish. Again, the contrast between the two types of lifestyle. We have a stingy, rich man who thought he was entitled to everything, and he could have made a difference in this poor man's life, but he didn't. He didn't. It continues on. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix that they that would pass from hence to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from thence to us. In other words, once you have lived your whole life for yourself, knowing God wanted you to change your ways, knowing that God wanted you to do better, knowing that God wanted you to surrender your will to his, if you reject God's calling and invitation to change your life and you die, there is a great gulf. You cannot go back and do things over again. It's sort of like the Tanya Tucker song, uh, it's a little too late to do the right thing now. I think the anguish this person is feeling at this point is the mental anguish. Have you ever been so fearful of something 
that your tongue cleaves to the roof of your mouth. I mean, you can't even hardly speak because something scared you so much. I think that's the mental anguish this person is experiencing. It's not that he's burning in, in a place called hell. That's not the point. And he said, continuing on, I pray, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify unto them, lest they also come unto this place of torment. Now the torment is coming to a place where you realize it's a little too late to do the right thing now. It's a little too late to turn back now. That's the torment that we're really talking about. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one would go to them from the dead, they will repent. Now here again we learn that this is just a parable, a riddle, an allegory. Dead people are not going to come back to life and warn anyone, okay? That's just a reality. You're not going to, you know, some dead relative is not going to come to you and say, hey, give your heart to the Lord. It's just not going to happen. So we're learning, learning here, this is a parable. This is an allegory. Because in reality, these things are not occurring. All right. And he said to him, if they will hear not Moses and the prophet, neither Will they be persuaded if one rose from the dead? Now, what this parable is really all about is for, you know, all you people who are sitting on your hands, not answering the call of God. What this parable is saying is, is look, they have, in this story, he says, look, they have Moses and the prophets. They're not going to hear it, though one is, comes back alive from the dead. If they won't hear Moses and the prophet, if they won't believe their Bible, then nothing else will work. In other words, you have everything you need. You have Moses and the prophet. You have your Bible in your hands. You ha God's not going to resurrect dead relatives, relatives to warn you to turn from your wicked way. He's not going to send you a miracle. You have everything you need, and that is your Bible. You have no excuse. You have no excuse. Now, I want to talk about the, what I call the real hellfire. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works there, there are, therein shall be burned up. Okay, this is what I call your real hellfire. When the earth... Everything on the earth that has chosen to live without a relationship with God one day out in the future is going to be burned up. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth created. But in other words, God is going to recycle the whole earth. God's into recycling. I'm sure some of you would like that, to know that. Now, this hell does not exist yet. How do we know that? Well, because the earth is not burning up right now. Okay. All right. So this hell does not exist yet. Uh, this hell will totally destroy. The wages of sin is death. Okay. So we're, we're getting some clarification here about the real subject of hell. Number one, the earth is not melting with fervent heat as of yet. So this hell does not exist yet. Okay. The hell, this hell will totally destroy the sinner, the wages of sin is death. This hell will not last forever. 
once it burns up, it will be over with. Okay. This hell will not exist. Also, another good point. This hell will not exist until everyone has had their chance for salvation. Now, that's another subject, by the way. But anyway, Revelation uh, 21 and verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more, no more sea. So God's going to recycle the earth. You know, you just ball it up and you... You know, like recycling plastic. You know, you ball it up, you just you know, burn it up, whatever, and you turn it back into something else. God's going to recycle the earth. Now, I think an important point to realize here is don't, you know, is don't put off God. Don't put off God until, you know, because sometimes that's how people interpret you know they 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 don't they blow their chance god is trying to work with people he's convicting them and he may be convicting you but don't put off god there's there's there is such a thing as coming to a point to where you realize you've blown your chance and when this time comes it will be too late to make any change in your life if you feel god is convicting you of sin that God wants a relationship with you, you need to answer that call. You need to answer the calling. Because you don't want to be one of those people. As this parable explains here, who comes to the point of mental anguish and torment and realize it's too late for me to do the right thing now. Yeah, I believe everybody gets a chance for salvation according to God's timing. I absolutely believe that. And I believe that there is a second resurrection where all those who never had a chance will be given a chance. But having said that, this little parable of Lazarus and the rich man illustrates that if you remotely feel God pull upon your heartstring, God working in your life, you don't need to just block, shut that window. You need to open that window and let God in and let God work with you and let God change you and to answer the calling of God. God is calling a first fruit right now. And you may be one of those first fruits that God is working with right now. So take this seriously. Take God, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm David Freeman, and that's what's really in your Bible. Is it possible to change the man or the woman in the mirror? And if so, how? Are we simply victims of our past behaviors with no way out of our sins and addictions? Jesus told a woman to go and sin no more. This is real change. No longer a slave to sin. But how is this possible? You were created incomplete, lacking the necessary drive and desire that would cause you to do the right thing. The bottom line is this. You need a second spirit. Man's real problems are spiritual in nature, and the natural man simply cannot solve spiritual problems. How can we know what is right, and how can we have the desire and power to choose what is right? Real change is possible and the ability to please God is possible, but it is only possible by receiving God's spiritual DNA. 
Order your free booklet entitled, How You Can Change and Please God. Order by writing to Church of God Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151. That's Church of God Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151. Also, check us out on the web at isthatreallyinthebible.net.